Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross. This is our Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast number three of hurricane season 2022. Coming up on today's episode is the new acting director of the National Hurricane Center, Jamie Rome. As you probably know, former director Ken Graham moved on to be director of the whole National Weather Service, of which the Hurricane Center is a part. Jamie led the storm surge program for more than 10 years, and he oversaw a tremendous expansion of the science of predicting storm surge and how the public is informed. These days, you can't imagine not talking about storm surge when a hurricane is approaching the coast, but back in the day, it was a much lower profile threat. Jamie and his team have received all kinds of awards and accolades for the progress and the products they developed over the last 10 years or so. We'll talk to Jamie about storm surge, of course, but also about what's new this hurricane season from the National Hurricane Center. Our conversation is coming up in just a moment. I'm recording this podcast on Tuesday, June 21st, 2022. As of today, the tropics remain quiet. It's a very different June than last year when every little non-tropical disturbance near the southeastern U.S. seemed to find a pocket of conducive atmosphere for organizing into a tropical storm. But none of this says anything about the rest of the hurricane season. The factors that we look at in June are still, again there. But none of this says anything about the rest of the hurricane season. The factors we look at in June still seem reasonably supportive of a busy season, unfortunately. The water along the equator in the Pacific South Hawaii continues to be cool, Cold water there can make the atmosphere over the Atlantic extra conducive to hurricane development, and extra warm water makes it hostile. Water that's a bit cool, like this year, can be somewhat conducive to extra storm development, but it sometimes doesn't have much effect at all. The other big factor is the temperature of the water in the tropical Atlantic. It's been running just slightly above normal, but it's forecast to warm up some more. So this is why you're seeing forecasts that average about eight hurricanes, which is above the long-term average of about six. But it's not some like crazy number like 10 or 11 or 12 or, or something like that. The bottom line is, of course, we'll see. And we all have to be prepared. Okay, here's my conversation with the new acting director of the National Hurricane Center, Jamie Rome. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. So congratulations on your new job, I guess. It's uh, intense from what I can see from the outside. So what's it uh, been like in the two weeks or so since you were appointed acting director of the Hurricane Center? Well, I mean, fortunately, we had a little bit of notice. And so we had a transition plan already worked out. And so really the first week was about moving through that that transition plan, um, making sure all of our staff and core partners and constituents were, you know, comfortable and understood uh, the transition. And so now we're, we're sort of falling into uh, getting ready for what we call a hurricane season posture, meaning we're starting to make final touches to our communication system, our software, our tools, just to make sure they're hardened and ready to go. We'll run a few more stress tests just to make sure everything is 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 up and ready for the the peak of hurricane season so now it's starting to feel a bit more familiar i think because this is more of a traditional cadence for us is everybody back working in the hurricane center or do some people still work from home yeah we're we're in a hybrid uh setup uh and basically what that means is some at home and some in the office Uh, obviously when it's a high profile or 
are, are very, very important um, forecasts, like a, a hurricane or hurricane landfall, there's more in-person presence than at home. Uh, and then based off um, you know, the CDC community spread levels and the, the level of activity from a weather perspective, we can also shift back uh, home if necessary to keep our staff protected. So as long as I've known you, you've been you know, focused on storm surge. And uh, now you have to pay attention to everything. Is, is it hard to kind of look away from storm surge and, and you know, start looking at, at all of the other hazards and not to mention just hazards, but all the communications and, you know, all the contacts you have to do? Um, it, it, it is a little bit. I mean, storm surge is um, the, the most recent long-term position I've had at the Hurricane Center, but I was also a hurricane specialist for two and a half years. And then I worked in our marine um, unit, uh, tropical analysis forecast branch for six and a half years. Um, and then sort of bounced around in, in various uh, acting roles uh, within the front office, which is where I'm at now. So I was acting executive officer for a while, I was acting deputy director for a while, then permanent deputy director for a little while, and, and now, now this job. So you know, I can pull from it past experiences a little bit, and that, that's a that's a huge help, I, I think. Um, but uh, but to your point, storm surge is is always going to hold a, a special place in my heart. Um, I was there the longest twelve years, and also because that was an upstart. You know, other parts of the hurricane uh, program were more well established and remain well-established with storm surge was a relatively new endeavor. I think anytime anybody who's ever started their own business will sympathize with this. You know, that that's always, when you do an upstart, that's always going to hold a special place in your heart. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's start at the beginning and then we'll talk about storm surge and everything else. How'd you get interested in hurricanes and end up at the hurricane center? It was accidental. Um, <laughs> you know, I wish I had this great story to tell you of some past hurricane that, mm -hmm inspired uh, inspired me to um, pursue a career in hurricane. Um, you know, I grew up in, in eastern North Carolina, which has its fair share of hurricane strikes. So, you know, I certainly I had hurricane experiences as a child, which um, contributed to my love of weather. But it was, you know, at the time, it was also winter weather uh, as well. You know, I, I, I used to really like trying to distinguish the phenomenon that creates to uh, rain versus snow. That, that type of uh, weather. Uh, and then I went to, to um, uh, North Carolina State University in Raleigh, North Carolina. You know, we had a couple of um, hurricane strikes and impacts mm -hmm. uh, there in, in the late 90s. And, and that just, you know, at some point I just found myself drifting more and more towards the tropical side of things. And there was an entry level position at the Hurricane Center. Um, and I thought, you know, what the heck? They're never going to hire me. Why not? you know, practice my application skills and that sort of stuff. And they literally called up one day and said, can you be here in five weeks? Um, that's, that's how it went. I was midstream my master's degree. So I ended up finishing my master's degree um, while here at the Hurricane Center. Wow. All right. Well, so for, for many years, uh, you said you were uh, ensconced in storm surge. But when you got to the Hurricane Center, I mean, storm surge was a thing, right? It was kind of always a thing. I remember storm surge forecast for Hurricane Camille back in 1969. Uh, right. but, but what changed and how did it become kind of a, a separate thing with the higher profile that it has today, deservedly, uh, by the way? But it does feel different now than it uh, used to before you started on this path. Well, some of it's a chance. Uh, you know, we 
we had uh, a long, uh, as you know, a historian yourself, a long string of inactive seasons. Uh, and then the storms that did hit, like Andrew, were primarily wind, or at least, you know, that was the narrative of the wind-based mm-hmm. storm from a damage perspective. And so that, that just caused storm surge to sort of drift out of focus in the late 90s and, and early 2000s. Um, and, and we can really thank Bill Reed, the former director of the, the Hurricane Center, um, based off his experience in Houston, Galveston, and his vast knowledge of the potential storm surge um, threat there, who came to the Hurricane Center and, and brought with him this, this desire to put more focus on that phenomenon. Um, and, and then we started having more wet storms, you know, more storm, more big storm surge uh, events. Not to mention um, Katrina, I guess, at, at some point. There. Right. Right. So, you know, Katrina is obviously the, the you know, quintessential you know, storm surge events. Uh, and then 20- followed by Ike three years later. Uh, and I, yeah. I think, was the one that really uh, broke the camel's back, mm-hmm. um, at least for me. Um, you know, to me, the storm surge forecast was was really, really, really dire and severe. Uh, yet you remember all those people had to be rescued off the Bolivar Peninsula. Right. And, and that's what got me thinking. Something's not right here. When, when the storm surge is this, when you're predicting 20 feet of storm surge and people don't evacuate, that's when you know you get a communication problem. Uh, it's not a forecast problem, it's a communication problem. And I think that's what really was the storm that uh, pushed us all to, to, to focus on storm surge. Yeah. Let's take a quick pause. We'll be right back on the Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast in just a moment. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So for many years, the amazing Brian Jarvanen was a storm surge guy at the Hurricane Center. And I remember learning about the slosh model that simulates storm surge from him. And it's really great to read, even today, his analyses of the great Miami hurricane of 1926, kind of retro engineering that one and Hurricane Andrew and other storms. Did did you essentially inherit the technology of Brian's era or had it significantly improved by the time you started focusing on surge? You know, Brian, we can't say enough good things about Brian. I mean, so much of what, what he established, we still do today. And what many people don't know about Brian is he's, he's a great trainer and, and mentor. And so he took me under his wing very early on, even long before I transitioned to the storm surge and actually was one of the, the you know, senior staff here that taught me how to hurricane forecast before uh, we went, before I became our, our hurricane uh, specialist. I can remember making forecasts of um, Charlie with him, which is you know, really amazing. Ivan, I can remember a great story. Uh, Ivan remembers extremely low latitude you know, at one right. point. And I can remember he and I initializing it, Ivan, uh, which means the starting point, you know, where it was located at the time. It was either 8.8 or 8.9. Yeah, it was north. below 10 degrees. And we all said, well, no, I mean, they can't really do this below 10 degrees, can it? I mean, that was always back then sort of the cutoff. Since then, we've right. learned that that's not always the cutoff. Uh, but uh, but uh, yeah, I remember 10 degrees was it. It had to be above 10 degrees. So Brian and I were working that evening mm-hmm. uh, together. He was training me and I actually did one of those forecasts. Um, so he, he's just a great, great trainer, really believed in investing in the younger staff. 
Um, so, you know, that legacy clearly lives on. Um, but what what he did with the you creation of these uh, moms and meows, which are just risk maps, that's all they are, it's a risk-based map, that then go into developing hurricane evacuation zones and more importantly, hurricane evacuation plans. Um, while the technology and the modeling has advanced over the years, that that business model still to the to this day exists. Those slosh moms and meows are still the backbone of the nation's hurricane evacuation protocols and planning from, from Texas to Maine. Yeah, they're sort of close to worst case in various different scenarios. But again, kind of tell you what's, uh, how bad could it be at any one location? So that's what uh, they land for. I guess, you know, it's important, since we're going to talk about storm surge, to, to define these terms because we have something of a conflict uh, <laughs> between the proper scientific definitions and the colloquial meanings, right, of storm surge, storm tide, and inundation. I mean, everybody... Right always wants to know uh, how high is the storm surge going to be, but they really want to know how bad the inundation is going to be, how bad is it going to, uh, going to flood. How do you sort all that out now that you've thought about this for so many years for people that don't understand the nuances of, of the definitions and the different words they might hear? I mean, going back to our, how we started the conversation, this is a great example of why we were failing to communicate in storm surge because we as physical scientists are like just determined to use the most precise mm -hmm. definitions and words. I mean, it's just so near and dear to our heart. Yet the outside world doesn't see things the way we see things as physical scientists. And so when we did um, focus groups, and, and back then, mind you, focus groups in government was controversial. Oh my gosh, you know, we. Right. Do now it it's common, but yes, then right. this was the beginning of let's figure out what the people actually think we're saying. And so that, that moment for me, you know, so we did these focus groups where you take ordinary non-scientists and you introduce them to terms like coastal flooding, um, storm surge, storm tide, you know, all these types of things. And the only phrase that people reacted to was storm surge. Now, they didn't fully understand it, but they understood that it was bad. You know, they had an emotional reaction when, you know, you I, I could watch these focus groups and people would react like an emotional reaction, almost like a fear of the phrase. And that's when we decided, um, you know what, you know, our job is communicating and, and protecting the public. So we need to use the terms that resonate most with them, even if as a physical scientist, we don't necessarily like those phrases or terms. And so storm surge, we started using storm surge for the collective whole, meaning any sort of flooding that arises from a uh, you know, tropical system pushing water towards land. You know, obviously that flooding is inclusive of tide. You know, storm surge, the, the pure definition of storm surge is, is the, the delta between the normal tide and what actually happens. So um, by changing the definition, if you will, to say storm surge is just inclusive of, of everything that's involved in coastal flooding, um, the physical scientists weren't happy, but the public, I think, was and reacted better to our our products and services. Meaning we, we call it a storm surge warning, not a storm tide warning, not an inundation warning, not a coastal flood warning. Right. That's a different phenomenon. 
Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the slogan of my life is precision is the enemy of accuracy. And <laughs> nowhere does it better apply than in trying to um, communicate these things. So w whatever the storm surge or the inundation level, there can often be and usually are waves on top of that. Right. And they effectively make the water higher. Are they calculated in uh, somehow? And, in, in, you know, when you make this kind of a, a statement or is it really a separate thing? That's a great question. So there's, uh, if we're going to talk about waves, there's two things we have to sort of uh, distinguish here. There's wave setup. So wave setup is the cumulative elevation of the water levels that occurs by many, many, many waves, hundreds of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of breaking waves over hours. So the waves come in and the water doesn't completely go out because more right. waves come in and the push is generally in. So Waves just kind of add up to this buildup of water, wave setup. Right. As now, you said. we can calculate that, and that's included in our in our forecast. The, the modeling has advanced enough that we can include this sort of time-averaged um, wave impact. Now, what we can't yet uh, calculate and forecast is what's called wave runoff. And that's when one wave, the instantaneous furthest extent that that wave goes. So imagine a wave breaks and shoots up the beach or shoots shoots down a road. Um, that one wave, that's called wave runup. We cannot yet uh, forecast that aspect of it. So our forecast is not inclusive of that. But you uh, kind of include some sense of how high the water can get that loosely um, you know, include some of that, but but we'll talk about those numbers in just a second. So when you started forecasting storm, storm surge and being involved and thinking about how to make this better, was there a master plan? Could you envision all the additional graphics the storm surge unit would create and the challenges with language and everything else? Uh, you, know, you know, did you have any sense of where you were going or was it really a one step at a time kind of thing? No, we did. We kind of had a, I mean, obviously it evolves, uh, you know, it'd be unfair to say you sort of had it all planned up perfectly in the beginning. Yeah. But what we we're up against in the beginning, so you got to take you back in time so you can understand conceptually. Um, mortality was thought to be rising, you know, owing to Ed Rappaport's research on uh, causes of mortality from, from storm surge, or at least we, we understood that storm surge was the leading cause of, of direct fatalities in, in, in you know, tropical systems. And we wanted to try to find a way to bring that down. Well, the traditional way that you would bring down mortality would be to, uh, you know, try to increase evacuations, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that that's what we were wrestling against. Um, evacuation, this is especially true in the post-Katrina, post-era, right. as we talked about. So the way to think about evacuation or evacuation area and mortality is like the Doppler dilemma, you know, that you or, or or false alarm ratio versus probability of detection. You, you can't pull on one without pulling the other, mm -hmm. right? This is a tug of war. So what we were aiming to do, which at the time was thought to be uh, somewhat reckless, was bring down storm surge mortality and, and shrink evacuation zones or the size of evacuations in this country. Because the thought was if you evacuate too large of an area, you basically render evacuations ineffective. Or what you do is you drive mortality up in just the evacuations. The example of that is Hurricane Rita, where 104 people uh, were estimated to have lost their lives in just the evacuation alone. Yeah, so, massive evacuations are dangerous things, just 
intrinsically and uh, people are a little, you know, stressed and everything else. So you have a lot of factors going on that make that so. So this was, I mean, this was our initial goal was to shrink evacuation area with the amount of people evacuated and cut mortality. And again, that was back then was considered, um, you know, know, somewhat controversial and and difficult because it sort of defied the conventional wisdom on how you would, you know, if you, if you wanted to cut evacuation or evacuation area, it was assumed that you had to accept a higher mortality rate in so doing. Um, So that, that's, that was the initial um, vision. Um, And then we built upon the ideas that started prior to me uh, advanced by Ed Rappaport of an explicit storm surge warning. You know, historically, we've only had a hurricane warning, right. and we tried to communicate the storm surge threat indirectly with that hurricane warning. Where Ed had been advancing or, or advocating for years an explicit or, or separate storm surge warning, and we sort of built upon those early ideas and, and went from there. Yeah, we should say that Ed Rappaport was the longtime deputy director of the Hurricane Center and wrote some of the great um, Hurricane Andrew forecasts. Right. As a matter of fact, he, he was the one that put in the discussion that that Andrew uh, might very well re-intensify just as it was approaching the coast as it passed over the the yeah. Gulf Stream, uh, which caused me to not talk about it weakening over the Bahamas because the idea of people thinking it was weakening and coming out of their safe place and so forth when you had the Gulf Stream ahead, uh, that was a that was a very prescient uh, forecast by Ed. So I guess we should talk about, you know, how annoying storm surge is to forecast because a slight wobble or bend in the storm track can make a huge difference on how high the seawater rises at over land at any particular place, right? So since uh, we can't forecast the storm's future track precisely, not to mention its strength and its size, it creates a communications challenge that feels daunting. So I can imagine when you really started to pull this apart, uh, that was front and center of, of the thinking of, of what you're, you know, what you're up against. Am I right? Yeah, it was, it was uh, thinking back. Sometimes I wonder if I had known what I know now, what I've done it. Uh, but um, it, 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 you, all the challenges that you highlighted, um, it, it, you know, it's so location specific, literally, you know, the storm moves 10, 10 miles and you get a totally different outcome. Um, you know, maybe even 10 or 15 feet difference uh, as we've proven in some of these past storms. But there's another element of it that made it particularly challenging as we brought storm surge to the forefront and, and made it more, uh, made the public more aware, they ascribed the same expectation of accuracy that we have for say the track mm-hmm. forecast and the science and predictability of storm surge couldn't live up to that expectation. So as we put this big old spotlight on storm surge and these new products, uh, the first few years were difficult because the public perception you know, was at that time, these forecasts aren't accurate. You know, this, this is not going well. This is this, this, this evolution is not working well. But that's uh, because so, the, the, a little bit of track makes a lot of difference in storm surge where a yeah. little bit of track difference doesn't make so much difference in the perception of how good the forecast was. Correct. Right. So and wind is wind is wind. Mm-hmm. So if you take a, a cat three hurricane based off wind speed and you move it 10 miles, it's still cat three winds. Mm-hmm. The wind doesn't vary with the track. You know, it, it, you know, it just 
it is what it is. Whereas storm surge, you take that same storm and you move it and you could have a totally different outcome, uh, not only at that location, but just for the storm itself, the surge could go up or go down just on, on moving the storm around. Yeah, just like the because you have an opening, like the opening to Biscayne Bay in Miami. If it's, right. if the storm is north of there, the water is not being pushed in south of Key Biscayne. If it's south of there, it is being pushed in south of Key Biscayne. It makes a tremendous difference how much water you have in the southern end of Biscayne Bay, including downtown Miami, for example. Yeah, exactly. Especially if this so-called radius of maximum winds or what you know the eye wall. If right. the eye wall hits the opening of a, of a bay uh, just perfectly, you're, you're going to get a totally different outcome than, say, if the, if the eye wall or, or strongest onshore push of water is, is further north or further south. Right, right, right. So when you put out a forecast like four to six feet from Ocean Springs, Mississippi, to the Alabama-Florida border, which I think was a forecast during Hurricane Sally, maybe, uh, does that range reflect the uncertainty in the track or the uncertainty in the timing and the, or, and the tides? Or is it more or less just a worst case, you know, this is what people should be prepared, prepared for that kind of takes all that uncertainty into account? So it, it's taking in all of the factors. It's taking in if the track moves. It's taking in the variations in tide. It's taking in the variations in, in local uh, land, topography, and bathymetry. Um, so it's taking in all of that. And I wouldn't say it's a worst case scenario in, in the traditional sense. But what, what uh, to your point, how do you interpret this four to six feet from point A to point B? So a lot of people wrongly interpret that it's going to be four to six everywhere between point A and point B. Um, and if we knew precisely where the hurricane was going to go, you know, two or three days beforehand, we could make that forecast. But because we don't, we have to, you know, bound it with these points. And that means that four to six feet is likely to occur somewhere, somewhere between point A and B. So in essence, it is a risk. It is a form of risk communication because it's not saying everywhere between point A and B will get four to six feet. It's saying someone between a and B will get four, four to six feet. So uh, what you're saying really is if you knew where the storm was going, the technology today, the computer models, would tell you how high the storm surge is going to be, right? If you know yep. the size of the storm, how fast it's moving, uh, and where it's going to hit, you know the bathymetry and or what the land looks like and, and so forth. So the storm surge technology is good. So back we were talking about in Brian Jarvin's day, he used the slosh model. I know this model called the slosh model is really the basic model you use. But now we hear about all kinds of other storm surge uh, models out there. Where does, where does the modeling for this uh, stand? And, and why do you guys use the slosh model? But, you know, there are other, I mean, if you watch Twitter, <laughs> you see other people talking about storm surge models and so forth. Yeah, I mean, storm surge model or models are no different than, than atmospheric models in the sense that they're trying to solve the physical equations of motion. Um, in this case, the, the ocean uh, versus the atmosphere. Um, and and then mathematically, ocean models and, and atmospheric models are kind of similar mathematically. It's just how you run them and you know, there's just some differences on how you orchestrate it all. Um, slosh is one of several, just like atmospheric models, there's many atmospheric models. Slosh is one of many. Um, but the reason slosh is, um, 
is so good. There's two reasons. And, you know, I'm going to speak to the mechanics out there. Um, if any of you sort of dabble on the weekends with uh, an outboard engine, right? You know, so outboard engine, keeping it running. Um, my outboard engine is pretty old, but if it breaks down on the water, I know precisely what to do to start it and get safely back to shore because it's, it's known, tested, embedded technology. There's nothing new on that engine. Um, and slosh is kind of the same. It's been so battle hardened over the years that it doesn't fail uh, during a storm. And we know precisely what to do if it runs into problems. And, and you know, that that's very reassuring um, for something that is is of a high magnitude as as what we do here at the Hurricane Center. The, but the second reason is more the scientific component. Um, some of these newer models are so advanced and they consume so much computer power. It requires so much computer power that you can really only run it one time or maybe two times. Um, and whereas slosh, we can run it hundreds of times uh, under different scenarios, meaning we can move the storm to the west or left. We can move the storm to the right or east. We can speed it up. We can slow it down. We can hit it with high tide. We can hit it with low tide. We can make the storm bigger, smaller, and we can, you know, just go through all these scenarios and then derive these really advanced risk-based products, right? And I'll give you an example uh, of this. In, in, in Ida, you know, we were communicating with locals about whether or not levees could be compromised or overtopped. If you run one model one time, you can say, well, in that simulation, the levee didn't overtop, which is not particularly useful. Um, what we were able to supply EMs and, and uh, emergency managers during Ida was more sophisticated uh, type decision support. We could say, you know, you know, out of 600 of our simulations, you know, 200 are overtopping the the, the levy system in, in your community, and that would imply, you know, like a 33% risk. So you can start giving people more advanced um, types of scenarios. The other things we can do is, is sort of say, well, if the storm moves this way, uh, that's the scenario that's going to overtop, right? That, that's the scenario. And, and then they can start keying in and starting to pay attention such that when the forecast evolves, they're kind of already perched and ready to execute. And so, you know, slosh gives us all these abilities uh, to do these more sophisticated type uh, probabilistic, you know, scenarios, solutions, and and is um, more reliable and, and steady than some of these other models. Yeah, so somebody can, can notice, okay, ahead of time, if it stays to the right side of the cone, for example, then we're right. in bigger trouble than if it stays to the left side of the cone. You can give them that kind of information. And also the, comes, what comes out of this is this concept of reasonable worst case, right? So that's the goal is to tell people what's the reasonable worst case based on the best scientific knowledge uh, we have here today. But you can do so much more also because computer power has uh, just increased, right? I mean, that's right. a key part of this. Right. I mean, we're, we're in the process of switching within NOAA to uh, a brand new supercomputer, which will afford us in storm surge basically three times the computer power that we had, you know, just, just a month or so ago. And, and with that, we can pursue um, new, new technologies, new physics. Um, we can expand, for example, we're going to use that to expand, expand our, our slosh and probabilistic 
uh, prediction system to the Central Pacific and, and provide guidance to Hawaii, places like Hawaii, which is historically never had, you know, storm surge predictions, at least real-time um, numerical modeling uh, predictions. Um, and we can expand and do some new things within Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, which is because we were talking waves earlier. The, the vast majority of the water rise there is due to wave physics and not traditional storm surge. The traditional storm surge really isn't a huge problem down there. It's all this, this wave setup, as we talked about before, which is the cumulative impact of water rise from waves over the course of, of time. So because we, we that's, have a, that's because they have so much deep water offshore. Right. That's Correct. The, so right, when you have deep water offshore, you get bigger waves. When you have shallow water offshore, you get more storm surge that pushes farther inland. Exactly. You know, the, the deepest part of the Atlantic is right off um, the coast of Puerto Rico. So and then, and then what happens when you have this deep, deep shore or deep drop off is the waves break right at the immediate coastline. Mm -hmm. And so their energy is contained in a very narrow swath right at the uh, the energy of the breaking wave is, is right there at the coastline. And so the water piles up more. So um, we're able to um, employ a new version of slosh that has these waves, this, this advanced wave physics in it. And that's what allows us to expand our guidance uh, to Puerto Rico and Virgin Islands and then Hawaii, which similarly has a steep bathymetry. Yes. Yeah. And that's why the... Storm surge on the east coast of Florida has bigger waves than the storm surge on the west coast of Florida because, yeah. of, the, because of the deeper water offshore. Hey, Brian here. I'll be back with Acting Director Jamie Rome from the National Hurricane Center after this quick break. All right, but it's true, isn't it, for all the computer models, this increased computer power really is uh, in large measure responsible for our better forecast these days for every hazard in the hurricane. Do you think that, and, and forecasts from the Hurricane Center have gotten step-by-step step, uh, uh, better every year or on an average, certainly, but do you think that people think today, because there's been so much success, generally if, they, if the Hurricane Center says a hurricane is coming, a hurricane is coming, that people think that they're better than they are, that the forecasts are actually better than they are. They have too much confidence today. I mean, I remember back to Hurricane Andrew, and at that time, we didn't really think that, that you could forecast a hurricane two or three days out. So the fact that the forecast changed dramatically, you know, wasn't, it wasn't like a crazy idea. Oh, it changed dramatically. Oh, well, they always change dramatically because they can't be forecast. Um, but my sense is people, you know, but too much, uh, they look too much at the details of the forecast. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a challenge. Um, it's a double, improving hurricane accuracy is a double-edged sword. You know, on the one hand, there's the obvious benefit and improved forecast, a more accurate forecast has massive societal benefits. But it also comes with this expectation that they're always going to be that accurate and that you can zoom in um, I see these things on TV now where it's, it, you know, it makes me want to pull what's left of my hair out, it, you know, where people are zooming in on like the wind, the edge of the cone. And it's like my house is now out of the cone or, or, or my, my house now is barely clipped by the, the hurricane force winds. And I mean, that's that's just uh, insane from 
from a scientific perspective, because the science, while it has rapidly, rapidly improved, does not allow that type of, of, of fidelity or granularity. Um, yet there's a societal expectation that hurricane forecasts are perfect. Um, and so we see these situations where we have a, a, a big storm. You, you can rattle off any of the past big storms where, you know, from a scientific perspective, the, the forecast was incredibly accurate from historical by historical standards. But the public perception of that forecast often is is not. And there's often a bit of a, a disappointment from the community in that the forecast didn't materialize as they thought it would. Yeah. So let's talk about one of those. Hurricane Laura was a, an incredible example of sort of National Hurricane Center philosophy uh, working storm surge forecasting and also the sensitivity of storm surge uh, to the, the, the track. And also how the media message is affected by where the reporters concentrate themselves, right? <laughs> so first of all, let, let's talk about the, the situation in metropolitan Houston, Harris County, Galveston County, and uh, that area, uh, especially while the European model was showing this very dangerous scenario. And if it were right, the Gulf water would have been pushed into Galveston Bay and it, it would have been bad for metropolitan Houston, but no evacuation orders were issued because of the hurricane center forecast. And I, you, I know you just recently talked about this because I was at the conference with you. Uh, you know, talk about that, the thinking that went into not biting on that really dangerous looking Hurricane Center forecast and uh, and the philosophy behind uh, making the call that the Hurricane Center did. Well, I mean, this is a great example of why uh, why um, amateurs looking at models online can be incredibly dangerous. Um, because while there is this perception out there that the European model is always right, that's simply not true. It's a, it's a very good model, and we use it a lot here at the Hurricane Center. But we also know the strengths and limitations of that modeling system and what situations might lend it to have what's called a bias, meaning it skews one way or another. Um, and so in this case, um, the, the European model in all of its ensembles, which ensembles are just the same model run many, many times, and the European model is run about 51 times, all of the all of those 51 ensemble members were basically threatening Houston Galveston. Mm -hmm. um, but we knew from experience that this particular setup, the European model tends to have a bit of a westward bias. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had other data that we were looking at at the time. Too far left, us, in other words. Right, too far yeah. left. Yeah. And so we, um, we had other information at the time that allowed us to lean more heavily on, on other modeling solutions and to apply quote unquote a correction if you will mm -hmm. um and that caused us to not bring the forecast the official forecast all the way over to houston galveston and then we were able to we felt strongly enough in that forecast to uh you know working with the local officials um you know encourage them to hold back on what would have been um a, a massive evacuation uh because houston galveston you know, it's, it's a couple million people at a, at a minimum that's probably in harm's way in that type of a strike. And again, we're going back to Rita, you know, 104 people died in the evacuation alone. So, 
you're really, really trying hard not to evacuate unnecessarily because it really it just has a massive societal impact. It crushes the local economy in terms of taxes and revenue and just puts a huge strain on society. Yeah, uh, although that is how we keep people safe that live in, in harm's way from storm surge, right? So I remember looking at that going, wow, this is a gutsy forecast here because, but you know, you're weighing these two, both of them are really dangerous and, and, uh, and terrible things. And I, I had to rank, somebody asked me to rank the worst hurricane cities. I put Houston as number one in that ranking because of the petrochemical uh, complexes and all that. And if you get big storm surge, it pushes all that r super polluted water up in, into the city and all of the other things. It is a, it's a very dangerous situation there. All right. So to talk about the, the other piece of Laura, which I know is near and dear to your heart, the, uh, the Lake Charles, Cameron, Paris situation in southwestern Louisiana, Lake Charles being the main city, but it's 30 miles from the Gulf, but it's connected to the Gulf by the Calcasieu Ship Channel, among other north-south waterways uh, there, which is something of a funnel for storm surge. And that's where the media people were in, in Lake Charles, of course. All right, talk about how that played out. Well, the Capshu Pass is basically a, a waterway or a highway for storm surge to very quickly and efficiently penetrate all the way to Lake Charles with, with nothing to stop it. There's no gates or anything like that to, to stop it. And if uh, Laura had have moved, you know, would have moved just west of Capshu Pass where the, the R&W or I-Wall, the strongest onshore push of winds, would have struck that pass. Um, it would have put probably 15 feet of water up into Lake Charles. And that was a very, very plausible outcome. And we would have been negligent not to communicate that risk. Remember, we're How much risking, did it miss by? Was it 15 miles or something? Yeah. Is that the number that I remember it you saying? By much. It ended up going inland just east, uh, you know, east of the pass. Mm -hmm. And so now you have winds kind of blowing more either shore parallel or shore offshore mm -hmm. versus shoving the water right in the, in the path. And even with that configuration, they still got nine feet uh, right there, you know, at the, at the pass. Um, and so, you know, and the reaction afterwards was the more disappointing part because, um, you know, for various reasons, the media had camped out up at Lake Charles, probably because it was just, you know, had access and, you know, things that media needed to, to cover the the, the storm, and besides, and, you couldn't really be at the coast there. I mean, right. all the residents left. I mean, everybody left, right? Because it's a like super dangerous place to be down there at the coast. They yeah, and play. so um, when the, when the sun came up, everybody saw the extreme wind damage that mm -hmm. occurred over uh, Lake Charles, but they didn't see any signs of water. So the narrative was that the storm surge just vanished; it just evaporated, right. which you know. You cannot push a Cat 4 anywhere in the Gulf of Mexico and not produce storm surge. I mean, that, that was just absurd that people thought the surge had vanished. And we started getting all these things like, oh, these theories of, you know, something absorbed the storm surge or the storm wasn't strong for a long enough period of time to allow the surge to build up. And it had nothing to do with any of that. Right. Or it, it was overstated was the really the, the really unfortunate uh statement right. that really smart meteorologists 
made in some big rush uh, that really was really was disappointing. And I know that that was uh, really disappointing to you as well. Yeah, I mean, and if that happens, I think outside of the meteorological community, it's disappointing but understandable. It's yeah. our job as is risk communicators to explain, you know, why that happened and why it occurred at a little bit east of where people thought. But when it happened within our own scientific community, um, it, it just, you know, it was really disheartening to see um, people who should know better um, fall in prey to that particular narrative. Well, I think it uh, it just reinforces what you said that this understanding of how storm surge works uh, is not well distributed even among, you know savvy weather people, right? right? It really is kind of a different thing. So then last year, there was Ida, of course, which caused two widely separated disasters, one in southeastern Louisiana and the other in the northeast in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and surrounding areas. So let's go in reverse order since we're talking about the dangers of, of water. Freshwater flooding has taken over as the number one killer on average uh, in recent years, especially people in cars drowning because they drive into flooded areas or get swept away or something else terrible happens. Is there something to learn from that event in the Northeast in terms of terminology or messaging or alerting? And, and you know, I mean, I know there's something to learn because I saw it right, right in front of me happening. But, you know, what's your sense of, of what can be learned and what we need to learn? I, I think this goes back to our original discussion about you know, the purest definition of storm surge versus storm tide and, and the physical scientists wanting to keep things pure. Um, there's a societal response um, upon hearing the phrase storm surge or storm surge warning. It sort of evokes this sense of you must do something, usually evacuate, you know, evacuate away from the coast. But when you hear the phrase flood warning, um, society doesn't yet, we haven't trained society yet to respond differently. I mean, what is the human response to a flood warning? You besides know, we that, we put up a flood warning for a small area that gets flooded or a big area that gets flooded, right? right. They both get the, the flood warning. So it does have a wide range of, of uh, different kinds of impacts, different so, scales, I mean, think, scales think, of impacts, I should say. I think we've got to try to move towards linking these flood products with a societal response. Uh, and whether that's training your outreach or whether that's uh, evolution of the phrases we use for flood impacts to evoke that reaction is a, is a social science, um, you know, research opportunity. Uh, but right now, when people hear flood warning or flood watch or whatever, they they just think it's going to rain a lot. They, they don't it, it doesn't click inside their brain that there's a there's an action that needs to be taken here. Certainly not to the extent that when people hear a hurricane warning, right? Yeah, you know, everybody in South Florida knows that when you hear a hurricane warning, it's it's time to shutter up, right? That there's a societal reaction to right. that product that just isn't mimicked in a, in a flood warning. Yeah, and in the Ida case in in the New York City general metropolitan area, it didn't even trigger emergency uh, management people in New York City and the administration, the mayor and, and whatnot to do special things to the public. Now, they did they did do special things kind of behind the scenes in terms of cleaning out drains and, and did things like that. But it didn't trigger what happened so often in New York City, which is the mayor gets on TV and said, this is a, this is a dangerous thing that didn't it didn't 
you know, jog uh, minds at that level, which kind of tells you that, that something needs to be done to uh, be sure that happens. And I think the extreme case of this, which is such an interesting case, is earlier in June was the 50th anniversary of, of uh, Hurricane Agnes, which was this devastating flood in the northeastern U.S., right? And it seems to me that this would be a massive messaging challenge today because people, that had a track, right? That had a track to follow. And the track was offshore from Virginia all the way to New York City. It essentially came ashore just east of New York City. But it was offshore. But yet the concentration of the, of the flood was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, was the bullseye, and all up there from Virginia up to inland in Pennsylvania. It seems like like that would be a great tabletop exercise or something and trying to imagine how that would work today and, and how you would, would message that because I'm sure the forecast would probably be pretty good today. But, uh, but how do you message that with the storm way over there? You know, don't look where the storm is. Look over here. Uh, feels like that's what, you know, what you'd be up against. Yeah, so I think, I think you hit on a good point here is uh, a lot of people have what I call cookbook meteorology meaning, oh, if the storm goes here, I get that. If mm-hmm. the storm is offshore, it's not that big of a deal. You know, they have all these sort of, you know, mental models in their head. And, and what happens in a case like, you know, Agnes, uh, I assume it was interacting with the, with the front. Yeah, the way there was a, well, it wasn't a front so much. It was an upper level disturbance. It was actually kind of a cutoff over that moved in over Pennsylvania. They had all this cold air aloft. So essentially it was a front, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in, in that case, you can get these rain shields that are or, or heavy rain, if you will, that departs from these traditional mental models of how a hurricane works. You know, a lot of people, you know, look at the phrase dirty side of the storm, right? Dirty side of the storm, right side of the storm. That 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 narrative presumes that the right side of the storm relative to its forward motion is always going to be the worst impact. And, and clearly it's it's not always the worst impacts. Uh, yeah, areas. especially early in the year and late in the year. You uh, Quite often it's the other side. It's the left side, sure. as a matter of fact. Yeah, because it interacts with uh, upper air. Brian here. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back on the Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast in just a moment. So what's new this hurricane season? Any new products, new models we should be looking for? Yeah, so uh, if you remember the, the experimental storm surge uh, graphic that we launched last year, sort of uh, you know denoted on a map, this four to six feet that we were talking about earlier with the monochromatic red you know, line, um, we're gonna colorize it this year. Uh, and that is to say um, the, the colors used will be based off the severity of the storm surge. So you'll move from a cool color palette for the lower storm surges to a warm, so like oranges, reds, and purples for, for extreme storm surge. And, and um, this is based off how we noticed that the media was colorizing this graphic. And it, it's it basically our effort to try to make this easier for our media partners to communicate you know, if, if they're having to do it manually, um, then, you know, we want to try to automate that process for them to, to make it easier. So that, that'll be experimental this year uh, for another season. If it's successful, then we'll make it operational and, and sort of codify it in future years. Now, behind the scenes, we're t- testing, so not available for public consumption, but behind the scenes, we're 
we're testing a next generation warning dissemination system. So this is more, I think, not not models and, and forecasting, but more, um, you know, compute I, IT type stuff and how we package up a warning and then we we sort of ship it out the door and have it delivered to your to your phone or to your website. Um, and we, we think early, early um, application of this new technology, uh, we tested it in Ida, uh, results in a, a rather substantial reduction in the warning area, meaning the size of the area that is placed under a storm surge warning. Um, and if this were to be materialized and, and if we could field it, meaning operationalize it, um, it would also have a similar impact on evacuations because evacuations are often tied to the storm surge warning area. Um, and this would sort of further, uh, further where we started this discussion, where we're trying to, we're basically trying to shrink the size of warnings and evacuations while not increasing mortality, at least direct mortality with a storm. And, and that's why you've noticed the, um, you know, the rather sudden, you know, we're tracking deaths more than we may have historically done uh, so that we can continue to measure, um, measure ourselves to make sure we are in fact not negatively impacting mortality while we continue to refine and shrink the, the hurricane warning and make it more hopefully precise. Yeah, so talking about shrinking, the cone uh, shrunk a little little bit this year, reflecting slightly lower errors in the track forecasts, although slightly bigger, a tiny bit bigger at, at five days. Do you think we're, we're coming close to a limit on how accurate hurricane forecast can be, or is there something coming along you think that will, you know, kickstart another downward trend? Yeah, so the cone's 20 years old this year. Who knew that? Uh, so happy 20th anniversary to the cone. And and unlike humans, um, it has shrunk with with age. Right. So it's getting skinnier as uh, as time marches on. Uh, but to your original question, um, you know, we're probably quickly approaching the limits of what can be achieved with respect to track uh, accuracy in the near term, in the zero to three days. Um, but I think there's a lot, a lot of potential work in the longer term track, say four or five, and we're experimenting with day six and day seven track forecast internally. Um, but the bigger nut or the more exciting nut to crack or the more exciting thing is um, our advances as intensity forecasts, specifically these so-called rapid intensifiers. And these are basically storms that, that acquire a huge increase in wind speed over a very short a period of time, uh, they just strengthen very rapidly. Um, and they have historically been very, very difficult. You know, Andrew would be a great example. Um, they've been- well, All the dog Cat 5s, right? If any of those uh, four Cat 5s that are in the record book uh, were to hit again, they would all be difficult in that regard. They're all rapid- and, and they've, all, they've all historically done that um, very, very close to land, mm -hmm. um, leaving society little time to react to the worst hurricanes out there. I mean, they all form and rapidly intensify really, really close to land, just like Andrew or just like Michael um, that hit the Florida panhandle. And so, um, but increasingly we've gotten better at anticip anticipating and, and advertising the potential for these systems to rapidly intensify in Ida, 
last year was, you know, a textbook example of we were able to uh, forecast and advertise the potential for rapid intensification long before it, it happened. Um, yeah, and almost we from the time it, it formed <laughs> in the right. first place, which was which was really a, a change in the paradigm of of how you communicate the, this possibility. Right. And I mean, you had mentioned earlier gutsy forecasts mm -hmm. uh, with uh, respect to Laura. Um, Ida, the initial forecast from Ida basically showed the system going from basically nothing, a disturbance, to a near cat three. Um, and I've worked at the Hurricane Center for 23 years, and I remember saying at the time, um, that's the most bold forecast I've ever seen in my time at the Hurricane Center. Um, you know, it was just absolutely shocking um, that, you know, we were able to produce that forecast and, and it, it largely materialized. In fact, it went beyond that. You know, it went even stronger than that. Um, and a, a, another example, we were talking about the narrative that happens after um, you know, after a storm, you know, some, some people claimed after Ida that there was no advance notice, but I mean, from a scientific perspective in looking at cat fours that have previously struck the U S coastline, I mean, that was an astronomically great forecast from a lead time perspective. Well, I just because it told, it told everybody that Wow, this is a real thing. This, you know, we have this problem that in the Gulf, especially if you get something that forms kind of close in. Oh, it's just a tropical storm. But right. the idea that out of the box to forecast a really significant hurricane, you know, when people get used to that, I think that'll make a big difference. That, that yeah, I, I think you're right. I think people are just not used to us being able to convey that that potential at, at right. those lead times and so i think we just need a couple of seasons for people to work up that trust factor enough to react to it yeah i think that's right so um just going back to what you said uh, about i know internally you guys have been working on six and seven day forecasts for uh, it's been a long time i think it seems like I mean, years fly by well you know to, from my standpoint that's a mixed bag <laughs> because uh, you already hear from lots of people that have, you know, forecast fatigue, cone fatigue, right? We're in the cone so often because it's a five-day cone where, you know, back in the beginning, 20 years ago, it was a three-day cone, uh, which was kind of a preparation cone. And you can just imagine uh, – now, it doesn't mean that if you do a seven-day forecast, it has to be a cone that goes out seven days – uh, if it did, you could imagine, you know, excessive uh, cone fatigue would would uh, materialize from that. What's what's your thinking on the balance between making those longer term forecasts and uh, how that might affect credibility? Because more often they're going to be wrong at those longer lead times and this kind of public fatigue factor and kind of being alerted in some fashion um, you know, more often, even more often than they are now. Yeah. I mean, especially the last two weeks, I've been thinking about this quite a bit because I abruptly inherited it. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a huge challenge and one that we don't take lightly because if you extend the comb, if, if that's the solution to day six and day seven, um, you're going to end up doing damage to the cone or the public perception of the cone 
in the days when it's most critical that they have trust in the cone because the errors at those longer lead times will be substantially higher than the errors at day three, four, and five. Um, and so there's that aspect of it. And, you know, I don't know that one can simply extrapolate that the tool we use for days one through five is the tool that you would use for day six and seven. I mean, it could be that there's like a, a quote unquote outlook type mm -hmm. product. Risk area, risk, uh, risk area type product. Yeah. 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 A risk area or something like that to, that would augment the cone and sort of mm -hmm. help convey, um, you know, Hey, a heads up, you know, let, you know, heads up to this portion of the, you know, Gulf coast or what have you that, um, you know, if you've got some preparations that need to take place, um, you know, now's the time to, to do it. And, you know, ideally I wish people would make those preparations on June one, but, um, I'm a realist too, and, and recognize that people aren't always going to do that. And so some sort of conveyance of risk beyond day five, um, probably does have a societal benefit, but how to convey it without doing irreparable damage to the cone remains. And, and to your point about, it seems like we've been working on it for a long time. It's just because, um, number one, it's a particularly difficult, you know, project to work on. And we're also very, very cognizant of not doing damage to the existing products and services. Yeah. When the cone first went to five days, there was this idea, okay, we're going to put crosshatch on phase four and five, and somehow that's going to be different. But I mean, that went away in a big hurry in terms of the public perception, mostly, I think, because the media ignored that. Although I remember right. doing that way back in the beginning, but but the media basically ignored the, the cross-hatching of day four and five to somehow say that's a different cone than the day one through three cone. The, the other thing that's contributing to the, the, the duration of the experimentation is the cone itself, you know, as I alluded to earlier, is 20 years old. It basically hasn't changed over the course of those 20 years. The cone itself is, is probably due for an evaluation and, and possibly um, not an overhaul, but possibly some sort of refinement and improvement. And I think we would try to the extent possible to, to do those things collectively. Since the cone, however it evolves, would feed back on how one conveys uncertainty at days six and seven. So we're trying to do those two um, together. Uh, we've got some pretty good early social science that suggests um, that uh, the cone itself doesn't need a dramatic overhaul, but probably does need some improvements on the edges, some sort of refinements, if you will. Um, and, and we're working through those findings now. Yeah, it's the, that whole project is very, very interesting. All right, Jamie, thanks so much. Congratulations uh, on your job. Uh, I know it's going to be busy and thanks for being on. Uh, thank you so much for having us. Give us opportunity to talk about hurricane season. All right, take care. National Hurricane Center Acting Director Jamie Rome. So much of the Hurricane Center director job is interfacing with the rest of government, FEMA, the Department of Defense, Department of State, and more. Jamie's already done a lot of that in his career, so he can step right in, which, of course, is great. And a tribute to the deep bench at the Hurricane Center, Dr. Cody Fritz has taken over the storm surge unit. Cody's very knowledgeable and experienced, so progress there will continue as well. 
Be sure you subscribe to our Tracking the Tropics podcast. Our next one will be after the July 4th holiday with another expert in the world of hurricanes and weather. So be ready for that. And remember to download the Fox Weather app. You can watch the live stream of Fox Weather on your phone or your iPad just by clicking in the upper right. And you can watch Fox Weather at foxweather.com or on the Roku channel, YouTube TV, and lots of other streaming platforms. So I'll see you there on Fox Weather on the stream and follow me at Twitter at B Norcross or on Facebook and Instagram. Just Google it. You'll find me. It's easy. Until next week, I'm Brian Norcross. Be well and stay informed. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.